0: Welcome again uh, to the story. This is the beginning of a new sermon series uh, called Light in the Darkness. Um, This is a six week conversation and the series title sounds innocent and harmless enough. It is Light in the Darkness, um, the cosmic collision between love and fear. Uh, It's kind of a generic title for a very dangerous conversation and it's a risky conversation. This is a conversation about cosmic forces of light and darkness. And I actually sent an email to people this week that I know are strong in their prayer life, asking for extra prayer for me, for the whole congregation, because I feel like not to be like Hollywood about this, but I feel like when you open this Pandora's box, um, maybe you open yourselves up to something, uh, dangerous. And so I'm praying for every one of us as we name our enemies that uh, as we grow in awareness of our enemies and their tactic against us, um, that, that we would be protected by God, by the blood of Jesus, that we would be surrounded with light even as darkness tries to take us over. Um, and so uh, that's what we're gonna be talking about for the next six weeks, all the way through Christmas. I don't really do sentimental Christmas very well, so we're gonna be talking about demonic Christmas. Does that sound good? Demons at Christmas, and so um, my favorite Christmas story in the Bible is not the one of Mary and Joseph in the manger, it's the one in Revelation where a woman is giving birth and a dragon is, uh, is on the prowl and the dragon, of course, is the embodiment of evil and the woman is Mary and the dragon is waiting for the child to be born so he can devour the child and that is what Christmas looked like from the vantage point of the heavens. And uh, that's the one that interests me the most, just to give you a little bit of insight into how my mind works. I have a vivid imagination, and sometimes I, I am convinced there is much more going on around us than what we're able to see. Even though everything else in the world that we live in, in this Western civilization of ours, would have us to believe that all there is is stuff you can see and touch and feel and taste and buy and acquire. And that's all that really matters. I'm convinced there's something more. So we're going to be talking about darkness and light, angels and demons, and this invisible war, I think, rages around us and within us. And this enemy of ours has several names in the Bible. Um, There's the accuser, the adversary, the dragon, the snake, dozens of names for this enemy. You probably know him as Satan or the devil. Um, And some of you are here for the first time. And you've already decided this will be the last time (laughs) that you're going to be here. Hang in there with me, man. I know it sounds weird, but hang in there with me. Others of you have been here for a while, and you kind of fell in love with the story, and now you're thinking you knew it was too good to be true. Now it's going to get weird. Uh, We are not going to get too terribly weird with this series. I mean, we're not that church, you know. Um, I mean, the snakes we handle later, they're not even that poisonous. Like, we've... (laughs) We've taken precautions, but uh, but but you know I want you to I want you to just hang in there with me, um, because I think the ones who've been indoctrinated aren't those who believe in these things, but those who don't. I think if you are so skeptical to the point of not really believing there is an enemy, there is an active embodiment of evil working, conspiring against you. And you are the one who's blind. Not those uneducated masses that still believe in that stuff. So we're going to uncover that and talk about that for the next um, six weeks. So I recognize that for many of us, for most of your friends, I imagine, Satan has become little more than a cartoon character. He's a caricature of some ancient figure. I mean, how scary could he really be? He wears red spandex and little cute horns, and he carries a little plastic pitchfork around with him. And and that's pretty much what he is. Satan made the list of top 10 most popular adult Halloween costumes, and this is not a joke, right between Donald Trump and sexy nurse. There's Satan. That's kind of how we think about him. On that list of, you know, kind of humorous, caricatures. If you watch South Park, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Smart people don't take Satan seriously. We know that. Educated people don't talk about demons and demonology and Satan and evil and all that stuff, if we believe in anything, we just believe in God. We just wanna talk about God and his love and feel his love. If you're Methodist, you've probably never heard the word Satan in church before. I've heard Methodists say, I was, I've been in church for 30 years. I've never heard a sermon about Satan or the devil or whatever, we leave that to Pentecostals or whoever, you know, like that's not us. And if, any of you that know me or know my journey, you know that I, I like to think of myself as a rational person. I like to think of myself as an intellectual person, a thinker. And so I do have some reservations about this series. But here's the question I want us all to wrestle with. And uh, it's, I think it's somewhere on your study guides. If you have those study guides with you, you can pull those out. But the question I want us to wrestle with is when it comes to these spiritual realities, the spiritual realm that the Bible takes so seriously, all that stuff either exists or it doesn't. It's either true or it's not. It's either absolutely true or it's absolutely a joke. And we have a choice to make about what we believe when it comes to uh, these spiritual realities. One thing that is certain is that Satan is no joke to Jesus. The devil is no joke to the Bible. Jesus and other parts of the Bible constantly point out the reality of this person who's conspiring against you. Jesus calls him the Lord of this world for now. The apostle Paul refers to him as the prince over the power of the air, which is a fantastic thing. No one knows what that means, but it sounds amazing. The prince over the power of the air? That's what the Apostle Paul calls the devil. Whatever it is, the embodiment of this evil, your enemy, my enemy, is no joke to Jesus. So the question you have to ask yourself, if you are an intellectual, skeptical-minded person who'd rather just take God and take Jesus as a good teacher, a guru of sorts, Jesus is along the same lines of Buddha and all the other great teachers, if that's kind of where your mind lines up, you have to ask yourself if... When it comes to the spiritual world, you know more than Jesus. Because Jesus was pretty convinced that these spiritual realities are true. And if they were true then, there's no reason to believe they're not true now. Just because we've read a few more books than Jesus' followers have means nothing about this unseen world. So it's either true or it isn't. The last thing I want you to consider as we get started here is that if, if, just entertain this notion, if Satan is real and if his purpose is to destroy you and to kill every part of you, would it not be the greatest strategy conceivable for him to disguise himself as a cartoon character so you might take your guard down? Just consider that possibility. If if it's true what Jesus said about these spiritual realities, would it not be a great tactic for your enemy to appear harmless or even like a fantasy figure so that you will not be on your guard against him if his purpose is to strike you dead? So. Those are the questions I want you to consider as we start. Now, most people I know in our culture today, even most Christians, if I'm honest, do not believe that this spiritual world exists or that it matters. Some of you are Christians and you're like, well, I believe, and most Christians would say, well, I believe in angels and demons. Angels are cute little babies with wings and demons, you know, they just run around with with their little tails and you know, like, But I don't really think most people, even most Christians, believe that world exists. Because if we believed that world was real, and in this very room that there was some kind of a war going on, an unseen war, we would be living very different lives. Our lives, our priorities would bear that out. We would pray more. (laughs) We would contemplate these things more, we would probably spend our time and our money a little bit differently if we believed there was this eternal war raging on around us and within us. Most of us do not believe that to be the case. As far as I can tell, there are two worldviews that we choose between. Most of us choose materialism. The other worldview is mysticism, and not to be absolutist about it, but you're either going to be a materialist or you're going to be a mystic about these things. And I would say 90-something percent of us in this culture have chosen to be materialist. We are evangelical materialists because it is so much a part of who we are. Most of us have been so steeped for so long in a materialistic worldview, we don't even see it anymore. And by materialism, I don't mean we like to go shopping and buy things, although that's a symptom, especially in this part of town. It's a symptom of a problem, but it's not the only symptom. The definition of a materialistic worldview is that you believe deeply, you accept the notion that all that really matters is the physical, material stuff of the world. That you might even believe that all that really exists is the physical, material stuff of the world. uh, uh, um, The father of mysticism, Democritus, said in the third century B.C., he said, all that exists is atoms and air... Everything else is opinion. I got a feeling, if we're honest, this is where most of us line up, at least in terms of how we live our lives. You might say, well, I think it's true. But analyze the way you're living your life. And if you're like me, you're probably more of a materialist than you would like to admit. What follows a materialistic worldview is uh, the idea that spiritual things either don't matter or just don't exist. And so the sacred things become less sacred. Angels and demons and souls and spirits, they're just kind of figments of the human imagination. Evangelical uh, materialists will say things like, The only reason we ever believed in those things like demons and angels and things is because there used to be, at one point in human history, an evolutionary benefit to believing in those things. And now that benefit has expired, and so those beliefs should expire too. I read something like that almost daily. And really heady materialists will say that they are shocked, flabbergasted by the idea that smart, educated Western people today would still claim any belief in silly things of fairy tales like angels and demons and, you know, mystical powers of good and evil and light and darkness Like we should have grown out of that. They, they say we should have grown out of that and matured beyond that. Uh, you know, a long, um, a long time ago. even some Christian voices echo this. I've read Christian blogs and things lately, really thoughtful, Uh, intellectual Christians, are saying things like, well, we need to stop talking about demons and evil and Satan and all that stuff. We need to talk about things that matter. We Christians need to talk about poverty. We Christians need to talk about violence. We Christians need to talk about the environment and on and on. And so the materialist will look at what happened, for example, the tragedy in Paris this week. And the materialist on a left-wing materialist will say, if if people in the Middle East just had jobs, if the economy was better, if the government was different, then these things wouldn't happen. A right-wing materialist would say, if we just went over there and bombed those people to high heaven, these things wouldn't happen. The mystic stands in the middle of these two people and and seize uh, the flaw in their argument. Because you can't address deeply spiritual problems, you can't address issues like this with material solutions. The mystic would say, that sounds like watching a city flood, a whole city underwater, and wishing you had a towel. Because there's really no material solution that will fix that problem, change the government, get some programs you know, or send your military over, whatever. We've tried all those things and we still have the problem. The mystic would say there is a deeper spiritual problem going on and not just in other parts of the world, but there is a deeper spiritual problem happening everywhere in this room too, in my heart as well. There is a war raging on, an unseen battle between good and evil and light and darkness and the choices I make contribute to that war and there is an enemy in the world that uses our weaknesses against us that uses your predispositions against you if you can to try and take whatever life god wants to give you away And the same is true for the world uh, on the whole and so um, uh, uh, the mystic would say material stuff matters but it's not all there is there's more going on, and you can't fix spiritual problems with material solutions. In The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien uh, perfectly illustrates what the difference is between mystics and materialists. Y'all remember um, the, uh, the, the Shire? You remember the Baggins in the Shire? You remember Frodo Baggins in the Shire and the Hobbits? Any nerds in the house today? Can, can the nerds say amen? All right, I love to see the nerds in the house. About 22 of you are going to be with me for the next 10 minutes. The rest of you... Grab some coffee, make yourselves comfortable, deal with it for a second. But in the Shire, uh, the the hobbits are not bad people, but they are materialists in the way that they live their lives. They just kind of drift along the surface of life. They eat a lot, they drink a lot, and they hang out with friends a lot, and that's about as deep as the hobbits get. And the same thing is true for Frodo, Frodo Baggins who is a a younger uh, hobbit, and he lives his life just like every other hobbit does. Again, nothing evil necessarily or bad about how they go about their lives, but, but nothing too deep. Once Frodo takes possession of the one ring, his whole worldview begins to change. He begins to see that the world that you see is not all that there is, that there's more going on, in the world than what you can see and hear. And when he becomes aware of this is when he's under attack from the Black Riders. And some of you are like totally checked out. He's under attack from the Black Riders. And while he's under attack, he falls down and the ring, the one ring, accidentally slips onto his finger. And in a moment, Frodo is able to see this reality, this other realm that had been there all along. It's not like it suddenly just appeared. It was there all along. These spiritual forces of light and darkness that were waging war all around Frodo, angels and demons and things like that. And Frodo realizes that there is more to life than what can be seen. I hope this series for many of us is some kind of a one ring moment for us. I hope that over the next six weeks, you see something for the first time, something that's been there all along, but you, you haven't quite seen till now. Maybe you've sensed it, Maybe you felt like something is working against you, or maybe you felt like, in a mystical way, God is working with you, but you couldn't see it until now. So on the one hand, I want you to become more aware of the enemy that haunts you, the enemy that conspires against you. On the other hand, I want you to become more aware of your advocate, Jesus calls him, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in your heart when you invite him and who gives you every power that you need to withstand, attack, and overcome. Frodo overcomes. (laughs) You thought you were off the hook. Frodo overcomes. But it's not because of his own strength. Frodo's not very strong. It's not because of his own smarts. Frodo's not very smart. It's because of his innocence. It's because of his purity of heart, his childlike heart. There's this great council of big, strong men. They're trying to decide who's going to be the one strong enough to take the ring from here to Mordor. There's a long journey ahead. We have these enemies working against us. Which of these big, strong men will take it? And as they're arguing and fighting amongst themselves, Frodo says, I will take it, though I do not know the way. And Gandalf the wizard knows (laughs) he's the one because of his innocence, because he's like a child. Jesus gives us some further insight into what I'm trying to say today in Matthew chapter 18. If you open your Bibles with me to Matthew 18. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture will be found on the screens and also in your study guides. If you don't have a Bible at all, let us gift you with one. And on your way out, just stop by the hospitality station. We'd love to give you a Bible. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child, whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus couldn't be clearer that the innocence of children is not something they should grow out of. The simplicity of a childlike heart isn't something we should hope will change when we look at our children. In fact, Jesus would say, stop trying to make children grow out of the way they are and start trying to grow back into who you used to be. Because we've decided that innocence is a bad thing. We think innocence is naivete. We think someone will take advantage of you if you're innocent. It makes you gullible. It makes you susceptible to someone else's uh, priorities. Jesus says innocence isn't weakness, it's strength in disguise. Jesus says only the people who see the world as children see it will be able to see God's kingdom around them. Do you get that? You ever been around children? How they're fascinated by the world around them until we decide they need screens in their faces half the day. They're fascinated with the world the way it is. Why? Maybe they see more than we do. Maybe because they are chronologically closer proximity to God than we are. Maybe they've been with him more recently than we have. Maybe they see the world God made in a different way. Whatever it is, whatever the case, it's clear biblically that children see something we don't. And all this time, we've tried to make kids more like us. Jesus says, you should be more like them. So... This week, I spent some time with my kids at the park. We discovered a great new park up in the Heights. I'm not going to tell you where it is, because I don't want it to be too crowded next time I go. So (laughs) it's a fantastic park. Uh, And uh, we were playing, and uh, I wanted to go and just read a book and work on my sermon and be left alone. That's why I go to a park with my kids, so that they'll be distracted for a while. It's good parenting right there. And uh, (laughs) I wanted them to leave me alone, but they weren't having it. They wanted to play. We got there. They wanted to play chase. So I started to play chase with them. Played chase for a little while. I started noticing the other parents in the park weren't happy with me because their kids were looking at me play with my kids, and then they would look at their parents and be like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you love me like he loves his kids? So the parents were upset with me, and so I decided to tell my kids that I needed to sit down and not play chase for a while. But no, they begged me again, they said, again, again. And so I would get up, and I would chase them again, and then I decided, you know, I was, I was too tired. I sat down. I told them I needed a break. Then I saw them over by the swings, and they were struggling to get up in the swings, and, and they looked kind of pathetic over there trying to get themselves up in the swings. I was like, my kids can't look pathetic like that, you know. Uh, and so I, I went over and got them in the swings. and. Daddy, will you push me? Daddy, will you push me? And so I'm there pushing my kids in the swing, but the whole time I'm pushing them in the swing, my phone is vibrating, like something really important is happening in my pocket, and I'm just here pushing the swings. I can't check my phone. I might have gotten a like on Instagram or a comment on Facebook, and I don't even know because I'm pushing these swings. And so I just leave them there. I say, kids, pump your legs. Do it yourself. You're fine. You're good. And I walk away and check my phone. A few minutes later, I see him playing hide and seek. I look at them, they're having such a good time, and something, see, I have a remnant of my childlike spirit that remains in me. And something wanted what they had, and so I decided I'd start playing. We played a couple rounds of hide-and-seek. I got bored with it before they did, and so after a while, I was, I was literally trying to hide from my children. <laughs> and uh, just have a moment, you know, of Peace. I told him I wanted to be done, but there it was again, again, again. Sometimes when your kids are having fun, again is their favorite word. The author and theologian Chesterton has an insight about this in his book, Orthodoxy. Because children have abounding vitality, he says, because they are in spirit, fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we." One way that we as Christians reclaim our infancy, we reclaim our childlike spirits, is through baptism. One of the symbols of the waters of baptism is the rebirth that happens and, and that, that phrase Jesus uses, born again, you must be born again. It's been taken and twisted to, by us to mean something completely different. Most of you probably don't go out into the world and say, I'm a born again Christian because, you know, you're Methodist or whatever you are. Like, uh, you know, Jesus didn't mean Southern Baptist when he said, you must be born again. He, he meant you need to start over. You need to grow back, to be a child again with God, to trust as God trusts, as children trust God, to to be innocent in the way that you see the world, to see the kingdom of God all around you like children do. And so the waters of baptism are meant to replicate the waters of birth. And so the first time you came into the world, you came in all wet and messy. And when these little girls and whoever else decides to be baptized, you you know, uh, you go into the water, you come out wet and messy. Back in the day, the early Christians decided we should be baptized as naked as the day you were born. So the early Christians were baptized naked to to reproduce that, that image of birth. We don't do that anymore. Can I get an amen? Testify somebody. Amen over here from the baptism corner. They're happy. But the image is the same. Be renewed. Be reborn. Be as a child so that you can wake up every morning and instead of saying, oh, where's the coffee? You wake up and you say, again, 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 God. Let's do this again. Let's shine that light again. Like we did the day before. In the baptism of Jesus, this is the story from Matthew 3. We're still in the same Gospel, Matthew 3, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to John, his cousin, John the Baptist, at the Jordan River to be baptized by him, and John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness, then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Most of us read this story, and we think this baptism was different because it was Jesus. We read this story and we think this baptism was special because it was Jesus. Of course the Holy Spirit came. It was Jesus. Of course God's voice rang down from heaven. This is my son. He makes me happy. I love him because it was Jesus. But I have two questions for you as we consider baptism and being reborn today. Two questions. First, what if, what if Jesus' baptism and what happened at Jesus' baptism happens at every baptism. What if every time someone is baptized in the water, the Holy Spirit descends, but we don't have eyes to see it because we're materialists. What if every time someone is baptized, the voice of God rings down from heaven. This is my daughter. I love her. She makes me happy. This is my son. I love him. He makes me happy. What if that voice still rings down, but we can't hear it because our ears are blocked from hearing spiritual things? What if Jesus' baptism was no different than the ones we're about to celebrate and from yours when you were baptized? Second, what if baptism was never meant to be sappy and sentimental? But instead was to be understood spiritually baptism to us has become a ceremony people get dressed up and take pictures and it's nice and it's sweet and we have lunch after and it's it's just it's a fun you know sentimental day I'm not at all sure that's what baptism was meant to be in the Bible Baptism seems to be a one-ring moment. Baptism seems to be the moment all of us as a community change our perspective and and, and adopt a different worldview. It's supposed to be an eye-opener. I think when the Spirit comes down on Jesus, that's, that's supposed to be something we all are able to see every time someone's baptized. When God's voice rings down from heaven, We all should hear it. The Holy Spirit was there. And I think, you know, by the same token, and this is what I'm really trying to say with baptism, God is not the only one here today. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit was there, but so was the adversary. The very next verse says right after he was baptized, Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let us not sentimentalize this act. This is not something sweet that we're saying. The Holy Spirit is coming to dwell in these girls. And among all of us, the Holy Spirit is not the only one that's here today. When we baptize these girls in God's voice, if you listen closely, I bet you'll hear it. God's voice says, this is my daughter, and I love her, and she pleases me. And we as a congregation make our own promises On the the screen is going to have some words for you to say in a minute, and you're going to make promises to these girls to help them be disciples and pray for them. Do not say those words sentimentally. Don't say them unless you mean them. Because what you're saying with these words isn't sweet. You're saying to whatever enemy wants to claim these girls' lives. There may be young people in this city that you're claiming. There may be young people throughout the world that you're sticking a claim to, but Not these girls, not today, they are God's. This one is God's daughter, not yours. You can get away because we claim this one, God claims this one, and we, the people of the light, will not stop until every son and every daughter is aware that their father loves them and is proud of them and wants them as his own again. What if that's what we're supposed to be thinking? praying about when we baptize today we're going to baptize three young ladies as you saw earlier we also are uh, opening the option up to the whole room for baptism if you're not baptized I would love to talk to you about baptism we had a spontaneous baptism at 930 his wife and kids weren't with him he said they're gonna kill him when he gets home for doing it without him but he said today's the day man We have a new brother in Christ, Amir. And if you've already been baptized, but you've wandered far from God, or maybe you've been away and you know it's time to come home during communion later, I'm going to be standing by the water. And after you get communion, just come by. Let me put a little bit of water on your head, and I'll tell you to remember your baptism, keep it holy, and know that God goes with you every day. I hope that you will take this as seriously as Jesus did right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for every good gift, for your light and your love. We are sorry for the ways that we've sentimentalized something so potent. We fail to see the struggle raging around us. We fail to perceive it within us and help us to see that something's at stake with the lives we're living now. But the stuff we see and touch and buy and taste, it's not all there is. It's, in fact, very little of what is real in the world. We're living for something more. Give us strength and courage to shine light in dark places. Give us a childlike spirit to see your kingdom blossoming up all around us. Every day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.